academic, but, but Lord, personal and real. I pray that we be free from distractions, that we remember to turn ringers off our phones and be established in our seats so we can freely hear your word. So open our ears and soften our hearts. Lord, as we read your word, may we make application for our lives the better promise and better covenant that we have that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Middle schoolers, you are dismissed as they'll be going up to the youth room. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Hebrews. So if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 8, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study in this wonderful epistle that's in the back of the New Testament. So Hebrews chapter 8, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We want you to read with us as we're going to finish the chapter and go into chapter 9. So the book of Hebrews chapter 8, we covered the first six verses last time. And then we're going to finish the chapter and then move into chapter 9. But by way of review, I just want to uh, read once again verse 1 as we entered into chapter 8 last week. That the writer of Hebrews, he says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So when the writer of Hebrews pens these words, now this is the main point of the things we are saying, keep in mind it's not just a summary of the things that is being stressed in the epistle or what we read in the previous chapter, but in essence he is now saying that this is the crowning jewel that I have said to you up to this point. And then we see that he's stressing that main point in the chapter before us. And and if you've been with us in our study going through this epistle on Sunday mornings, we know that the book of Hebrews is declaring to us and been telling us very clearly that Jesus is superior. He's superior to any religious system, to any religious person or created being. That man that seeks to look to, that is to be accounted uh, righteous before God, that really is the definition of religion. And I think that most of us, maybe all of us, at one point in our lives, that we've had somebody come to us and say, well, you're religious, right? Or you're a religious person. And they base it on what we do. They know you go to church, or perhaps that you read your Bible, or maybe you do service uh, at the church or in ministry of some sort. So people say, oh, you're a religious person. I remember the first time that I was told that, or uh, that comment was made to me uh, by an old high school teacher, and it kind of threw me for a loop. It's like, I'm religious? I didn't think I was religious. But people will base that what they say on what they see in our lives and and the things that we do. And you see, religion is man's effort to become acceptable and righteous before God. And as you look at the religions of the world, the essence of their belief is this, that this is what you have to do to become acceptable and, and holy and righteous before God, to be able to stand before God and say, I've done what is required of me to obtain a right standing before you and to make it to heaven. And unfortunately, there are those who call themselves Christians that can have that mindset. They think that they stand righteous before God, or they will, or that they're going to make it to heaven based on what they did. Well, I belong to the church. I was baptized in the church. I did this religious ritual. I um, gave to the church. I was a, a good person. Whatever it is that they say, when Christianity tells us by the word of God, 
that there is nothing that we can do in our own works, in our own efforts, that will provide a right standing before God. Because as Romans chapter 3, verse 23 declares, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And that word all means just that, all of us. We fall short of the glory of God. And then Paul, when he wrote his first epistle that's recorded there in the New Testament, he wrote it right after his first missionary journey when he had established those churches of Galatia, and he came to them given the gospel, that uh, for them, as many were coming, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, well, the Judaizers were coming behind Paul's ministry, and they were saying to those Gentile believers, that's all fine and dandy that you believe in Jesus and have faith in him, but it's not quite that simple. That if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be declared righteous before God, you have to be circumcised, and you have to keep the law of Moses. So Paul writing to them in that epistle right away, he says that I marvel that you turn away from uh, the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. And then he would write to them in chapter 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the writer here, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, is once again uh, bringing home the point that Jesus, he is the one who is able to save to the uttermost, as we read in chapter 7, verse 25. And, and he is able to save through the uttermost through those who come through the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He is our high priest who offered himself once and for all for our sins. Jesus died on Calvary's cross to provide forgiveness of sin, to bring us into right relationship with the Father, reconciliation with the Father, and the promise of eternal life. And it comes as I surrender my life to him in faith. And the main point being stressed once again, verse 1, is we have such a high priest who is seated, note that, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And of course, last week, if you were with us, we, see, we saw how very carefully that the writer showed us how Jesus is a high priest, not after the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. You see, as we read, that priesthood associated with the law, which made nothing perfect. You see, here's the thing, again, expressed in the New Testament. Paul would emphasize it in the book of Galatians, that there's a purpose of the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The standard of the law is, is God's perfect standard. The problem is this. It's you and me. We can't keep the law. And the law doesn't declare us righteous. The law declares us guilty before God. And the purpose of the law is to be a schoolmaster, a tutor, to drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So the priesthood of the Old Testament associated with the law, which made nothing perfect, as we read, just declares that we're not perfect, that we are guilty. And the high priest that in the Old Testament had to offer sacrifices for not only for the people, but for his own sins. And it was sacrifices that the people brought to the priest that it continued day after day. It was a continual work, and it wasn't sufficient to take away sin. But Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, a superior priesthood, offered up himself once and for all and is seated at the right hand of God. 
And as we've discussed how the priests, as they brought their sacrifices there to the tabernacle, to the temple, that was their access to God. The priests represented the people before God. But the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament under the law of Moses was a continual work. When Aaron, the, the first high priest, that when he went behind the veil that we're going to talk about, the, the earthly tabernacle, and then he's going to compare it when we move into chapter 9, the heavenly tabernacle. But when Aaron went behind that veil and offered the blood of the sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the nation, as he went into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God was and to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, he went in and he went out. He went in and he went out. There is no chair for him to sit in because it was a continual work. And it was something that the high priest did on the Day of Atonement every year. But Jesus, our great high priest, did something that no priest in the Old Testament did. Jesus provided a finished and complete sacrifice, and that is himself. And in chapter 6, verse 19, we read that he went then behind the veil and offered his blood in the heavenly sanctuary as a sacrifice for you and for me. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down, why? Because he finished the work for salvation for you and for me. And so now we come to him in faith. We turn to him in faith. And, and we receive the free gift of salvation by faith. And again, that's why Jesus would cry out from that cross, it is finished. So Christianity is not based on what I have to do to earn salvation. It is based on what he did to provide salvation for you and for me. By going to the cross and dying for our sins, and he rose again, and he is our perfect high priest. The animal sacrifices were just a picture of what was to come, and that is Jesus, who brought a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So don't be drawn away from that. Don't be drawn away from him, because he is your hope. So let's continue in verse 7 of the chapter, in, in chapter 8. We read, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. In other words, if the old covenant or first covenant was sufficient for you and for me to obtain a right standing before God, then it wouldn't you know, be a need for a new covenant. That is what is meant if the first covenant had been faultless. And God establishing a new covenant tells us that there was something lacking in the Old Covenant. And what we need to keep in mind is that there wasn't a fault in the covenant itself. In other words, the Old Covenant failed because of the sinfulness of the people, the sinfulness of the nation. We know that the law, there's nothing wrong with the law itself. It is God's righteous standard. The problem is with you and me. We can't keep it. We've all broken the law. When Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness to the mountain of God, God made a covenant with them. And as you read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God said, Therefore, if you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And as you read those books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, those books that a lot of Christians like to stay away from and don't read, you read continually, if you, if you, you shall, you shall, if you obey me, then blessing is going to come. 
But if not, if you disobey, then serious consequences are going to come your way and you're going to be eventually taken off into captivity and the nation would fail miserably. They would disobey God as you read those historical books, as you line it up with the books of the prophets that came and said to the people, turn away from your idolatry, turn away from your immorality. God's sending his messengers to warn the people that you're going to go off into to captivity. And we're seeing that going through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as he, in chapter 28, as we saw last week, given this prophecy as he's addressing the sins of the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and he warns them that captivity is going to come, and that would be fulfilled just a few years after he gives that prophecy to them. They ignored Isaiah, and they would go off into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And then, of course, we know that the house of Judah, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, that they eventually would go off into captivity because of their idolatry and, and sinfulness by Babylon beginning in 605 B.C. And before Judah would go off into captivity, after the ministry of Isaiah, you have Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's there in Jerusalem. He's ministering to the nation, telling them to forsake those idols, turn back to God. But they weren't listening. And it seemed so hopeless. And God found fault with them, as we're going to read here in verse 8. But there's this wonderful promise and word that comes from Isaiah. I mean, not from, not from Isaiah, but from Jeremiah in his book that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from now as we read verses 8 through 12. That, that Jeremiah, uh, writing about a new covenant in chapter 31 of his book, being now quoted here at verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers say, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So the old covenant began with the words, If you. The new covenant begins with the words, I will. And I really like that. Because in these verses here, as we look at the New Covenant, there are three things that I note here that brings an excellent ministry and a better promise and a better covenant. Number one, what I notice here is that God declares in verse 8 that I will. In verse 10, I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. You see, it's not just going to be abstract and religious and, and rituals and regulations through the external law. But the new covenant will feature real transformation from within. And again, it's not as the old covenant writing the law on the tablets of stone, but with the new covenant writing the law on the tablets of your heart. That is God's word. And haven't you found that to be true? I'm sure that you have. 
As we study the Word of God here together at Calvary Chapel, as we're going through the Scriptures, as you have your own devotions, as you read the Word of God about Him, His love for us, His provision, His ways, His promises given to you, the comfort that He desires to to give to you as you read His Word, the things that please Him, how we can produce fruit in our lives. It's real, isn't it? And it's alive in our hearts, just as it was declared in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is alive and powerful and what? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing our very hearts. And I know, and perhaps you, many of you have experienced it yourself, as you read the Word of God, it's like the the words of, of the pages come out and they get into your heart, and it's rich, and it's real, and it's there in our hearts, and it's alive. So I will put my law on their minds and write them on their hearts, first of all. Second of all, again, verse 10, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We know that we belong to God, and he belongs to us. It's not removed, it's not distant, it's not abstract. But again, real and personal and it's intimate. I have a relationship with him. I am his child. I am his son. I am his daughter. And John, the apostle of love, would emphasize this in his epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the, the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And Paul, when he was writing in Galatians and also in Romans, that he would talk about the spirit of adoption that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba literally means Papa. That we can cry out, Papa. We are sons and daughters of the living God that has relationship with him, that have been adopted as sons and daughters. And we cry out, Abba, Father. That is so special. You know, I have relationships with a lot of people in my life, but there's only four, four of my kids that can call me dad, call me father, call me papa. Because they're my sons, they're my daughters. And we are sons and daughters of the living Lord. And what my prayer is, is as we go through this epistle, that we would come to understand that we have relationship with him. It isn't just religion. We have his word that is in our hearts. So thirdly, what we see here is in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, the old covenant, as I've mentioned, and we're going to see as we continue uh, moving into chapter 9 and into chapter 10, the, it didn't provide a taking away of sin, the animal sacrifices. It was a covering of sin until Jesus came and gave the complete sacrifice, the true sacrifice, so that we have forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of sin. The greatest need that any man or any woman has is to be forgiven of sin. And all of us have needs, and they're important needs. We may have financial needs and health needs. We may have needs that the Lord for provision. We have needs and when it comes to relationships, whatever the case may be, and they're important. But the greatest need that any man or any woman has is to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus came and he provided that as he went to the cross. And as he died for our sins and he cried out, it is finished. And now we have the cleansing of sin. We've been redeemed, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb. He cleanses me, and I'm so thankful for that. And not only does he take away our sin and cleanses us as we are forgiven because of his sacrifice, 
but he takes away the shame and the guilt. Listen, I want to say this, that if you live in sin, continue in sin, that there's going to be bondage that's going to come to you because that's what the world has to offer. And the enemy will come along and he'll say, you know, get involved in worldly pleasures and there may be pleasure for a season, but the end of its way is destruction and defeat and depression. And that's the trick of the enemy, and particularly for you young people. If you really want to be free and have liberty, it comes by being forgiven of sin and then living for him. Being free to live for him. It's the way of holiness and righteousness. It's a higher way of living. Because if you pursue the world and the things of the world, you're just going to be in bondage. And you're going to be defeated. And you're going to be discouraged. And there's going to be that distance away from the Lord in your fellowship and intimacy with Him. Live for Him and enjoy Him. Allow Him to work in your life because He wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Will you trust Him? If you can trust Him with your salvation, you can trust Him with your life. Walk with Him. Learn of Him. Enjoy Him. And you're going to experience great liberty. So we're free, now that we're forgiven of sin, to, to have that freedom to live for him. We live in true liberty. And, and that comes from the new covenant, what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then in verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So you discourage Hebrew Christians, the initial readers, know this. Remember what Jeremiah wrote. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant, and you're in those days. So don't go back to the inferior covenant, which will vanish away. Now, some believe, some scholars, that verse 13 was actually a prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple. The temple, that magnificent temple in Jerusalem, would be destroyed just a few years after this epistle was written. So no more animal sacrifices, no more temple, no more temple worship, no more of those things taking place. The priesthood would come to an end at that time. There hasn't been a, a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. But the Lord has been building a better house, right? A living temple, as Peter writes, living stones in this holy habitation. That is you and me coming together. And you have something so much better is what we are being told based on God's mercy and grace and his provision that comes through Jesus Christ. So now as we go into chapter 9 for a few moments here, in detail what we're going to see and read about is how the heavenly sanctuary is superior to the earthly sanctuary and that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sin, that the animal sacrifices were not. And so in verses 1 through 5, we read about that earthly sanctuary or tabernacle and its furnishings. Let's read it. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances, a divine service, and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was a lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, verse 4, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak uh, now in detail. So 
the writer here reminds them of the tabernacle that was out there in the wilderness. They'd be very familiar with it. And he's given them, he's given us a picture of it once again. Now you might recall that we covered in chapter 8, verse 5, that we were told that the earthly tabernacle was just a shadow and a copy of the heavenly things. We know that when God told Moses, there at the mountain of God, he gave them the law of God, but he also said, Moses, that you're to build a tabernacle, and that's where I'm going to meet with my people. God initiated, and he was shown the pattern of the tabernacle, and it was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the earthly tabernacle described to us in details in Exodus, here's just kind of a, a summary of it. You had the outer courtyard. And in the outer courtyard, there was a wall around it. The wall was made of animal skins. And you would come to the altar of, of sacrifice. And then you had a laver that the priest would use to wash. And then the tabernacle itself, there was one door. And you would walk into a room. It was called the, the holy place. And on the right-hand side was the seven-branch menorah. It had uh, bowls on top of each of those branches with filled with oil and wicks floating around, and the priest would go in and light that menorah. It was the only source of light that was in the tabernacle. Now, inside the tabernacle, it was made of boards, a K of wood, that was overlaid with gold. So can you imagine the reflection of, of the, the, the lampstand, the light there reflecting off the gold, the walls there of the tabernacle be very beautiful. And then on the right-hand side was the showbread table with 12 loaves of bread that was changed every week, and the priest would eat of that bread. And then straight ahead of you was the altar of incense where they would burn incense, which represented the prayers of the people. Behind the altar of incense was a veil, and behind that veil was the Holy of Holies. And there we're told once again that the high priest would, would go in uh, as we're going to read, but in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, it was a box about three feet wide and two, uh, three feet long, two feet wide, uh, made of a K of wood, overlaid with gold, had a lid on it called the mercy seat, you know, made of cherubim. And, and the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. We're told something kind of unique here, that in the Ark of the Covenant was three things. It was a jar of manna, you know, the manna that fell out in the wilderness. There was Aaron's rod that budded in the book of Numbers. And then there was the tablets of the Ten Commandments that were there. So here he's reviewing this with them. And he says, now which we won't speak in detail, he just gives them uh, a review, if you would. And then concerning the services that were done in the tabernacle, let's read that in verses 6 and 7. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, that's the Holy of Holies, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. So if you are of the children of Israel, you can come to the outer courtyard. If you're a Gentile, you can even do that. You come with your sacrifice to the outer courtyard. You would uh, bring your trespass offering, your sin offering, or if you burnt your, brought your burnt offering or your free will offering, that was done out there in the outer court. As you went into the tabernacle itself, only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle. There was one door, and he would do his services, again, lighting the menorah, burning incense, and all of this. Then behind the veil, behind the altar of incense, only the high priest 
was allowed to go there until the Holy of Holies, where the tangible presence of God was. And there he did uh, the sprinkle of the blood on the Day of Atonement, and he was there for a short time. And as he's reviewing this, there's a point that's being made, and we see that the, the work didn't end until, well, let's read verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in both which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerning only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So what are we being told here? What we're being told is that the earthly tabernacle and the services uh, had limitations. How were they limited? Well, first of all, the tabernacle that Moses erected here on earth, it was um, an earthly sanctuary made up of earthly materials. And in the book of Exodus, it was Moses that, as God said, go to the people and, and they will give to making of the tabernacle. So Moses says, hey, give your offerings for the making of the tabernacles. And they gave freely, they gave willingly, they gave of their jewelry, gold and silver, because things were overlaid with gold in the furnishings. They gave of their animals for the animal skins that made up the tabernacle. And matter of fact, it tells us that the people gave so much that Moses had to stand up and say, stop giving, we have enough. We got more than enough. Wouldn't that be wonderful <laughs> to be able to say that? Stop giving, we got more than enough. But I think there's a real important principle that I'd like to touch on because we don't talk a whole lot about giving here at Calvary Chapel. But, you know, as God was guiding them, God was providing for them. And that's a, a principle and a truth that, that we like to live by here at Calvary Chapel. We don't talk about giving until we get to it in the scriptures, but I know that we are to give freely and willingly. And I pray that you do, so we can do the, the work of the ministry, so we can do God's service here in this tabernacle and continue to preach the gospel through the radio, to continue to reach out to others and do outreaches like this VBS in the park. We want to reach our community for Jesus Christ, and you have an opportunity to give, to give of your resources, to give of your time, of your talents, to be a part of what God is doing. And I know that as he guides us and whatever he has for us, that he's going to provide for us. And so we give freely, freely, willingly like they did. And, and it was that tabernacle that was made according to the heavenly tabernacle, the pattern there. And so secondly, as we discuss, the earthly tabernacle was just a shadow of the things to come. It was never the reality the tabernacle, the things of the tabernacle were just a shadow of the real tabernacle in heaven. And see, it pointed to, it spoke of Jesus. As we go through the book of Exodus, sometimes people will say, well, going through Hebrews, you know, Pastor Jeff, do you guys read the Old Testament? Do, do you even bother with it? Yes, we do. We go through the Old Testament because as Paul wrote to Timothy that all scripture, not some scripture, but all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So as we go through those books, chapter by chapter, you know, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that we can look at, for example, those sacrifices. We can look at the tabernacle and it points to Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. It's all fulfilled by Jesus. As you look at the tabernacle, that altar of sacrifice, it speaks of the cross. 
the tabernacle, there's one door. Jesus claims that I am the door. He made that declaration. The menorah there, the, the lampstand, that it points to Jesus as the light of the world and, and the showbread, the 12 loaves, that it speaks that Jesus is the bread of life. And then the holy of holies where the presence of God was. And, and so it was just something, a, a, a shadow of the reality Jesus Christ would have shown to us. And it's wonderful as you go through the Old Testament to look at it, even as Jesus said to the religious leaders that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. Thirdly, as I notice here, the tabernacle would be temporary. It's gone. The services of the priest no longer taking place. And we know that the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. There hasn't been sacrifices for 2,000 years. That all came to an end. And it's interesting, if you go to Israel with us, and you talk to, if you get the opportunity, talk to some of the Orthodox Jews, when it comes to the Day of Atonement, that which is the holiest day for their, for, for their calendar, that young Kippur, you ask them, hey, that your law says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We're going to read that later on in the chapter. So what about the sacrifices not being performed anymore, haven't been for 2,000 years? And they'll say, well, the, the young Kippur, Dave Atonement, is more of a Dave reflection, where we weigh our good with our bad, and our good outweighs our bad in all of this. And it's a day of fasting, of course. So it's interesting that, that there hasn't been any sacrifices. That all came to an end. But we also know this, and I think the last two points are important for us to understand. So if you're nodding off, I want you to pay attention, all right? You see, the earthly tabernacle was inaccessible to the people. The rituals, according to the law, never brought the people into the presence of the Lord. The people couldn't even come into the tabernacle. And the priests, they only could enter into the holy place. They could not enter into the holy of holies where... The tangible presence of God was, and even a high priest was limited in that to where he only did it once a year for a short time after elaborate washings and cleansings. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew's narrative tells us, when he cried out, it is finished, that in the temple there in Jerusalem, that the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, that it rent into it, tore in half from top to bottom and came down. And it was like the Lord was saying that come into my presence. I'm declaring open house. And we're going to see here that all this is going to be summed up in this, that now you can come in boldness in confidence into the holy of holies, into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, not our own confidence, but the high priest who would read that would be absolutely astonished. You mean that you guys in the new covenant on this side of the cross, that you can come into the presence of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies, not just once a year, but any time you want, and you can stay as long as you want, and you can do it as many times as you want. What a privilege that you and I have that I hope that we would understand and always remember that. That the veil has been rent and provision has been made it for us. And in the Old Testament, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. And also, 
that it didn't deal with their hearts, as the writer of Hebrews is touching on this, that, that we see here, it was ineffective to change the hearts of the people. The, the priest, the high priest, were given so much details in the giving of the sacrifices and offerings and the washings and the duties and, and how they ate of the holy things, verse 10. It would take place day after day, year after year, and it would become monotonous. We know that the Lord would speak of that in the Old Testament. Become monotonous to where they would just go through the rituals and through the motions, you know, doing the services that were told to them. And the earthly tabernacle and the sacrifices could not even make the high priest perfect. He was limited in his access to the presence of God. And here's the thing, that it didn't clear the conscience, verse 9. In other words, there wasn't this boldness when they could approach God because there was no access to God in the Holy of Holies. There wasn't that knowing that they were forgiven of sin once and for all because they kept bringing the sacrifices and there wasn't this newness of life by the Holy Spirit that we live in now. Isn't it interesting in the Old Testament they would inspect the animal? But they didn't inspect the worshiper. They inspected the animal, but not the worshiper. So this morning, the Lord looks at you into your heart. And he says, where are you at? He knows where you're at. And he loves you, and he desires to have closeness and fellowship with you, and for you to walk with him, to know him. For us every day to present our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. To be humbled before him. To have that desire to know him. To continue to grow in him. And in verse 11, as he's talking about the inadequacies and the shortcomings of the earthly tabernacle in verse 11, but Christ, and you've heard me say this before as, as we read this last verse, I'm going to wrap it up, but I've said this, that I like the buts that are in the scripture. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's pretty bad. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he has loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And I love the promises that are given to us in the scriptures. As you go through the Bible, we see how lost we are, how sinful we are, our condition, but God has saved us and forgiven us and gives us real hope of heaven. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Jesus operates as high priest in a superior sanctuary, in a new sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, not made with, by man. And we're going to talk about that more next time in this progression into the Holy of Holies that you and I get to enjoy. It's an incredible study. Hope you can make it. But Father, we thank you. We thank you for what we read. And again, I pray that as we go through, there can be a lot of terminology and Old Testament typology and, and all of this, but Lord, that we would understand the privilege that we have as believers in Jesus Christ to know that our sins are forgiven. We've been washed clean because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and now we have access to you, Lord. 
to come to the throne of grace even as it's already been declared in time of need and we all need to be forgiven. To come in confidence, not our own confidence, but the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ into your presence. And it only comes through what Jesus Christ has done in dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the grave, and giving us a living hope. So I pray we would never lose that in our hearts. Father, I thank you that we can have closeness with you and enjoy you, walk with you, to learn of you, to know that we are adopted sons and daughters of the true and living God through Jesus Christ.